0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. We are beginning a series on the book of Jude called, called Hey Jude. Hey Jude. No, called Boxing Club, but that's a good one called Hey Jude. And Jude is all about... I love these star, these Texas star gloves. Jude is all about a word called contend. It is about the contenders. It is about those that will contend, that will stand up, that will that will in, in some ways, and we're gonna explain this, fight for what is right and fight for the gospel, for Jesus, for the kingdom... Of God now you might wonder uh, does Jesus really need to be contended for uh, Jesus can fight his own fights but as we understand as Jude begins to unpack what it means to contend for the faith that is the big theme Jude is a itty bitty. Book. In fact, it's not really a book. All the New Testament are letters, by the way. They're not books. None of them are books. They're letters from one person to a church or from one person to another person. And this letter called Jude was written by a guy named Jude. You guessed good. That's good. Written by a guy named Jude. And Jude challenges us to contend for the faith. Now, when it comes to contending, there's the opposite of contending, which would be to cower, to back down, to give in, to be passive about the gospel or about the faith. Uh, but we're going to talk about also about what is the other side of the contenders in the book of Jude. There's two main character themes in the book of Jude, and one is the contenders and the pretenders. And today we're going to talk about the Pretenders, And we're going to talk more about the contenders next week as well. But today, we're going to focus on the contenders. Now, I'm going to come back to the gloves here in a minute. If you have the book of Jude... Uh, uh, With you if you have your bible go ahead and pull it out. We're going to talk a little bit about it The major theme obviously is contending. Ultimately, we have two choices We are contender or we are pretender and i'll explain that either you live in freedom or you will live in fear Either you will be proactive or you will be passive either you will serve or you will seek to be served The challenge in jude is to contend jude is a small one chapter letter Near the end of the New Testament. In fact, if you don't know where it's at, go to Revelation and then go to one book before it. In fact, the New Testament, after you get past the book of Acts, the entire New Testament is in order of size. It's not in order of chronology, it's not in order of when it was written. After you get the book of Acts, it was all written by size. And then Revelation, they just wrapped it up with the Revelation and End Time book, put it at the end. So from Romans to Jude, it's all about how big the letter is. And Jude is the smallest letter in the New Testament. In fact, it doesn't even have two chapters. It just has one. So whenever you see Jude 3, that just means Jude verse 3 because there is no chapter 1. Just before Revelation, it's often forgotten. You probably know more about the lyrics from Hey Jude than you do the principles from Jude. Uh, Jude 1 begins with this. Let's jump right in. Jude 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called and are loved in God the Father and kept For Jesus Christ. By the way, that one verse is its own message because there are three amazing things that it says in that one verse to those of you that are children of God. It says that you are called by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit calls us and draws us and you are loved in God and you are kept for Jesus Christ. God calls, loves and keeps you. Jude ends with a very similar phrase at the very end of the of this letter. We're going to unpack that a little bit next week. And then he says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And again, these are three amazing things that God lavishes on his kids. Mercy, undeserved mercy. That means it's a, that's not getting what you deserve while grace is getting what you don't deserve. You get mercy, you get peace, and you get love in abundance. Abundance. All right, so let's take a look at this key player jude. Let's do a background check on jude real quick Uh, the letter is basically was meant to be a letter of appreciation However, apparently something happened just before he wrote this letter And as we find out in verse 3 he changes from a letter of how awesome it is to serve god with you to a real fast Hardcore slam dunk letter of warning. It is a warning of false teachers, and it is a warning to false teachers. In fact, almost the majority of the letter is a warning to false teachers, not just a warning about them. Judas is his full name. Now, if I had turned to the book of Judas, you'd have thought, oh, he wrote a book? Judas is ever since the betrayal of Jesus, Judas has had uh, that name has just kind of been on the, the name you never want to name your child. You know, like there are people who name their pe- their, their kids all kinds of strange names out of the Bible. Uh, I don't know anybody that's ever accidentally named their kid Judas, you know. There's been like uh, Zerubbabel and, and different bad kings of the Bible, good kings of the Bible, bad characters of the Bible. I mean, if it's a Bible name, they get picked, but not Judas anymore, right? So Judas actually is the guy who wrote this letter. He is one of the apostles. There were two Judases with Jesus out of the twelve disciples who became apostles, and Judas the apostle, not Judas Iscariot the betrayer, uh, is the letter writer here. And and over the course of time, because Judas kind of took on this kind of negative connotation, they 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 basically began to call the letter Jude, okay, to to uh, separate him. His name is Judas. He is the half brother of Jesus he's the brother brother the full-blood brother of James who also gets a letter in the Bible Um, now here's the deal he starts off the letter by saying a servant of Jesus Christ even though he was the half brother of Jesus he did not in any way try to exalt himself over others or try to use that for his benefit but he said man I'm just a servant Of Jesus and the half-brother of James. Everybody knows James and Judas or Jude there were the half-brothers of Jesus. See, Mary had a miraculous birth. I don't know if you heard about it. There's a holiday about it coming up. And that miraculous birth is that she didn't have sexual relationships with anybody. She was a virgin and the Holy Spirit fell upon her and she became pregnant. It's the miracle of the virgin birth. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before holiday a little holiday called christmas talks about it well after she had jesus she married joseph and they had kids in fact they had lots of kids several boys and girls the bible mentions them by name and one of them was judas and one of them was James. Now, what's interesting about Judas and James is that neither one of them were even followers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. It wasn't until the resurrection of Christ, after they saw their brother raised from the dead, that they realized, oh, man, he's the Messiah. Could you imagine growing up with the perfect brother? Probably like what my brother and sister felt like. Um, Actually, I'm sure they would say just the opposite. Uh, Jude was was uh, this... Could you imagine James and their older brother? Because Jesus was the eldest of the family and uh, half-brothers because uh, the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus. And uh, so they did not have the same earthly father. Joseph was Jesus's basically adopted father. Did you know Jesus was adopted? Jesus was brought into the family. He was born of a virgin of Mary, and then he was brought in and adopted as a father. His, uh, his father, his stepdad, so to speak, Joseph, had kids with his mom, uh, Mary, and Judas was the little brother of Jesus. Could you imagine? You know, it's, it's hard enough having, you know, being the younger sibling of a, of a bossy older sibling, right? My sister was the oldest. She was like, Mom. It's like, okay, Mom. You know, it's like she was always left in charge, but could you imagine I'm leaving, Jesus is in charge. Like, man, always Jesus was his brother. Jude was not a follower until after the resurrection, and now he's a follower of Jesus, and he's on fire for God, and he's writing a letter to the churches, warning them and challenging them. Jude 1-3, or Jude 3, it begins, by the way, this letter is so small, you might even call it a a tweet, Uh, kind of a Facebook post, if you might, so this is Jude's Facebook post, his, his little rant on Facebook, some of you guys are great at that, rants, God bless you, you know, all right, here we go, Jude 3, says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that was... That's what he wanted to write about. He says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. That means stand strong and and be ready to defend or to stand firm in the faith. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. He goes, that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why? Well, because for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Well, by the way, false teachers are not obvious. They they slip in, they slide in. You don't sometimes know they're there. You gotta be looking for them sometimes. He says they are ungodly people. They, number one, uh, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for morality. That means they use grace as a license to sin. And number two, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. They turn Jesus into someone that he is not. That's two common things. We're going to come back to that. Um, Then he gives three examples that they would know that we might not. All right, He's talking to people who know about the Old Testament. So he's going to mention a lot of stuff in this tiny letter. He's going to go, bam, 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 that we're going to have to unpack a little bit. And this is an example. He says, he goes, you might know. He says, though you already all know this, except for maybe us. He says, I want to remind you that, number one, that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Interesting. Number two, and that the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day, the final judgment. And three, that in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Not just a temporary one-time, you know, spanking and you're done, but eternal fire, all right? They will suffer. Now, what are those three examples that he gave us all have in common? The examples are they all refer to judgment. They all refer to people who rebelled and in different places of authority, basically the big idea is that God does not mess around. Judgment is real regardless of your status. He goes through three levels. He says the Egyptians, man, this massive, modern, amazing, wealthy, powerful city was destroyed because they did not believe in the Lord God. And then he says that even the angelic angels who rebelled against the Lord God himself and were... Kicked out of heaven with the, uh, the with the false fallen angel, the devil, and uh, it says even even the angels they are awaiting the final judgment. They will be judged, and then he says, and in the cities, even these these small insignificant cities uh, who who lived in sexual immorality and perversion, they will be judged. He says, here's the big idea: don't think that you are going to slip out of God's view and be held accountable for your actions. He says, guys, listen, there are false teachers. There are pretenders among you. And he says right off the front, he says, I want to remind you, and you all know this, he says, judgment will come regardless of the status regardless of the position. And then it goes on, verse 8, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, that means these these grand self-exalting ideas that they had of themselves, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people, these pretenders, pollute their own bodies. That means they're sinful, unhealthy, living and reject authority. That means they reject spiritual correction. They reject the apostles and they heap abuse on celestial beings. Now we don't know what that talks, what that even means. That last part, some think that it means that they're cursing the angels. And uh, other translations believe that that celestial beings means people in authority, meaning that they that they heap curses on God's messengers, the apostles. That's kind of what I believe it it says. And then he says this. Verse nine, But even the uh, the archangel Michael, if you've ever seen Supernatural, um, their portrayal of Michael is inaccurate. I'm just saying. Some of these movies, uh, TV shows, uh, you know, I remember the movie Michael with John Travolta, how uh, the, the angel Michael came down to earth and he was like all bummed out because he had to go back to heaven. It's like, man, I sure do miss this place. You know, I'm like, uh, I don't, we will not be missing this place. All right, and Michael is not, you know, some, you know, boot scooting, you know, drunk. All right, Um, who loves Scientology as as well. So it says, even the archangel Michael, uh, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, uh, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that story that he just mentions isn't even in the Bible. It's in another writing that has been long lost. But here's the big idea. He says, even the archangel Michael knew who was boss. He says, but these eggheads, these pretenders, they have no idea who they are messing with. Even the great Michael, the archangel, had enough sense to never do anything outside of the authority of Jesus. Jude, by the way, reminds us that the devil is real here, all right? He is not a symbol. He is not a force. He's not just a picture of good and evil. He is a being. He is real. And then he goes on to say, yet these people, the pretenders, slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do, will destroy them. That means they're spiritually blind, and like wolves, they attack and tear apart the truth. Guys, man, he just unloads on these guys, and then he gives three comparisons that we're going to unpack, three comparisons of things they would have known that probably you don't know, and it's going to like blow your mind when you realize, whoa, man, these guys, these pretenders, were out to destroy the church of God. And this is what it says, verse 11, he says, Woe to them, those pretenders, woe to them, for they have taken, number one, the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into, number two, Balaam's error. And they have been destroyed in, number three, Korah's rebellion. All right, anybody know any of those stories? Raise your hand if you know anything about the way of Cain. you've heard of Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel is very simple. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve, by the way, this is another example where Jude, the brother of Jesus, says that Adam and Eve is not a symbolic character but real people. All right, the Old Testament is not a symbol. The Old Testament is not an allegory. The Old Testament, by Jesus, God himself on earth, validated the scriptures as true And Jude, the brother of Jesus here, says, Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, there's a throwback here. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, were two different types of Joes. Abel was a herdsman, and Cain was a farmer. And when it came time to offer offerings up to the Lord, Abel brought the very best of his sacrifices, one of his... uh, one of his goats. And what Cain brought was the leftovers of his harvest. And as a result, God said, you know what, Cain, I don't accept your offering, but Abel, I accept yours because Cain, yours lacks faith. And all of a sudden, Cain goes into a fit of rage. He gets angry. And then as the story goes, Cain murders Abel. And it's the first murder recorded in the Bible. It's Cain's life. By the way, Cain, the way of Cain is when someone's trying to approach God on their own terms. You see, it, re- it represents faithless empty religion. People that like to go through the motions but have no heart attached. When it comes to church, when it comes to serving, when it ch- comes to being a generous person in Christ, when it comes to to just walking out your love for Jesus, you give him whatever's left over. That's the way. Of Cain. Here's he basically is someone who gives what they feel and serves how they feel. It's faithless and meaningless. He says, This is someone who is like those pretenders, they approach God on their own terms. And then he he talks about a second guy, Balaam. Anybody know the story of Balaam? Have you guys ever heard the story of a donkey that talks in the Bible? All right, by the way. Again, an amazing story, and Jude is referencing that that actually happened. A donkey actually spoke (laughs) in the Bible, a miracle. Yes, the Bible is a miraculous book. I mean, to walk with God is to believe in miracles, and for some, that's a hurdle, because they don't believe in the miracles. I mean, our whole faith rests on a miracle, the resurrection, of course, so... uh, so here's the era of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. And Balaam was approached by a neighboring city and he was approached and he said, "Hey Balaam, you're a prophet and everything you say comes true. So will you do us a favor? We'll shell out some bucks. We'll give you some money and we'll 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 pay you if you will come to our camp and curse God's people." for us, because we're afraid of them, and, and we don't feel like uh, we have an edge, and, and we think that if you could just curse them, uh, then, then maybe we could, you know, defeat the people of God. Well, Balaam says, that sounds good to me, because I like the dough. So he gets on a donkey, and he begins to travel over there to meet with them and to to curse the children of God, and an angel keeps standing in the way, and Balaam cannot see the angel, but the, the mule does, the donkey does. So the donkey keeps avoiding this angel. Well, there's a part in the trail where there's a valley and there's a a, a kind of a, a walled in kind of pathway. And it's just wide enough for the mule and the rider. And there's an angel in the path in the middle of this, this, this passageway. Now, the The donkey sees the angel standing there with a sword drawn and stops out of fear. And Balaam starts hitting and beating this donkey. Come on, go, come on, go. And every time he goes, the donkey keeps kicking and banging his legs on the side of this little kind of pathway. And he keeps beating beating the donkey. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this beating, God loosens the tongue of the donkey. And the donkey says, No, (laughs) there's all kinds of funny things you could say there that he says. But basically, he says, "Um, no, we're going to die. There's an angel standing there. The Lord is telling us, do not go. And then the angel appears and says, Balaam, you are a fool. You cannot curse what God has blessed. If you go, you will be heaping curses upon yourself, and you should not go. Balaam then says, I'm sorry, you're right. And the angel disappears, and he keeps on going, and he shows up, and he gets paid to curse Israel. But all of a sudden, when he's about to curse Israel, the Lord stops him, and he says, uh, apparently, I can't curse who the Lord has blessed. So instead of me prophesying a curse, let me tell you how you can trick them. And so Balaam then begins to say that if you'll send your women over there, uh, they'll the men will all go crazy for the women, and they'll fall into adultery, and idolatry, and, and you can go in because God will then uh, lift his hand off them. So um, that's how that story goes. And it was it was a terrible, and Balaam is actually mentioned throughout the Bible. He was hired out uh, to use his gifts to curse God's people. Balaam's heir represents trying to use God for your own gain. He says there are those in the body of Christ, there are those in church that just like Balaam, uh, they represent the greedy. They represent the self Serving church attenders or people, the leaders, using God, using church, using religion, using people to get what they want to make their life better. There's a lot of Balaam pastors out there. There's a lot of Balaam apostles or preachers or guys on TV. There are people out there who walk in the air of Balaam, as Revelation says, the spirit of Balaam, who basically out there to deceive people, to deceive God's people, For their own selfish gain. And then he says there's a third one, and this is the Korahs. Now, I would be shocked if anybody knows who Korah is. Anybody know the Korah story? A few of you, very cool. Some of you have probably heard of Cain and Abel. Many of you probably heard of the talking donkey, but maybe you've never heard of Korah. Here's the Korah story in a nutshell. By the way, all these passages and additional verses about their stories are in your worship guide. In number 16, Moses is leading the people through the desert, uh, you know, during the wandering years. And Korah is this guy in in the tribe, uh, in the tribe of Levi, who basically doesn't like Moses' leadership. So he starts a coup. He he stirs up a lot of rebellion among the camp. He gets an army of people and a bunch of guys on his side and they come pounding on on uh, Moses's tent and they said, "Moses, your time is up. Election time and we have decided to boot you out of office and we're coming in because we don't like your authority and we don't like how you're leading things." Now, it did not turn out well for Korah. Uh, he tried a hostile takeover of Moses' leadership to get what he wanted and to get his ways and to get his agenda and to get his plans and to get uh, the, the things that he wanted. Uh, and he was going to basically lead everybody back to Egypt is what his plan was. He was says, you know what, this is pointless. You know, you've brought us out of the land of milk and honey to go to a land of milk and honey that's guarded by a bunch of, you know, treacherous armies. And so we're just going to forget the Primal Sand and, and he says, I think we should all go back to Egypt. Well, as the story unfolds, it turns out really bad for Korah and really bad for his followers. They all end up dying and it's just a disaster. So Korah's rebellion represents this, someone who's trying to serve God on their own terms. It represents the reduction of God's appointed leadership, the apostles. It, it is those in the church today who deny the scriptures of the apostles and stir divisiveness over the Bible. Guys, the Bible has been given to us by the Lord God himself, miraculously sustained and preserved miraculously. If you don't understand how the Bible can be trusted, in January we have our Living the Way course, and we have a whole month where we talk about where the Bible came from, how can it be trusted, where did it come from, what about all the books that didn't make it in, who picked the translations, all that we talk about it all. When you put the Bible to the test, it's the most ancient manuscript, the most numerous in number ancient of ancient manuscripts, the most reliable of all ancient manuscripts that are alive today. Now, it is reliable as a book, but it does take faith to believe in what it says. But when you say that I'm only going to pick and choose the parts that I like, then basically you have Korah's rebellion because God gave the apostles authority to give us the rest of the New Testament. And we when we deny the New Testament, when we don't like Paul's letters, Or when we explain away Peter's letters, or when we try to give a reason why Jude, what we're reading today, should not be included as divinely inspired from God, you are falling in the realm of Korah's rebellion, who deny the apostles' authority, which is the problem with Korah. So Jude says, stay away from these so-called pretenders, these so-called Christians, avoid them like the plague. And then he goes on. That one verse, those three stories. All right, he goes on, verse 12. Then he really cuts loose. You think he hasn't cut loose yet? <laughs> then he goes, He goes, These people, these pretenders are blemishes at your love feast. That means at communion. By the way, we break bread every, every week back here. You know, you, a wafer and, and some juice reminds us of the body and the blood of Christ. The early church, they didn't have shot glasses of, uh, of grape juice. You know what they had? They had a meal. And these love feasts represented the last dinner with Christ. And they broke bread in honor of his broken body. And they they drank fruit of the vine to represent his poured out blood for us. He says, He says, These people, however, are blemishes, giant, massive pimples at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. He says they're among you, and you don't even know it. And they're not even of you, but they're among you. And he goes, They're shepherds who feed only themselves. That means they're selfish. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. That means they're very deceptive. They're like autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. That means they're dead, fruitless trees. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. That means they're reckless. And uh, they're wandering stars. That means they lead people astray. And he says, and from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. He says, man, eternal punishment in the darkest, deepest places of the abyss, that's for them. Yikes. Man, Jude is unleashing some serious contention here. He's contending for the faith and identifying, giving us signs of the pretenders. He goes on. This next part's a weird passage. I'm just going to mention it. It's one of the bizarre pieces of the Bible that are uh, easily to explain but really confuse people. And then it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge Everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, Enoch is a character in the book of Genesis who didn't die. He's considered one of those few people in the Bible where the Lord was so, uh, um, you know, blessed by their life that God just uh, gently took him off the earth him, And uh, there's no evidence of where Enoch went or what happened to him He's a mysterious figure in the Bible Uh, He did some writings They were believed that some of those writings were passed down uh, to Noah And that some of them made it uh, even to the time of the early church And they were reading what was known as the book of Enoch Now there's actually a book of Enoch that's out right now that's not in the Bible And the reason that book is not in the Bible is because that book That is floating around called the book of Enoch is not the book of Enoch that was read by the early church and read by the apostles. That book has since been lost, but there are parts of it in the book that's floating around. There are pieces, like for instance, this part is in the actual book of Enoch that's floating around. But a lot of what the book of Enoch has has been added over the last thousand years years and last over several hundred years. So it's not a reliable God-breathed, inspired word from God. But the big idea of this is that, uh, by the way, I was going to say, it's too late now, but $10 to the first person to find the book of Enoch in their Bible, you won't find it. It's not there. Um, Meaning, here's the big idea of what he says. Since the earliest of times, God has said justice is coming. That's the big idea, is that whenever there's somebody who's a pretender, a fake, a phony, a deceptive person among the people of God, even from the earliest writings that they can even think of, the book or the letter of Enoch, God has said from the very beginning, justice is coming to those that attack his people. All right, verse 16. These people, the pretenders, are grumblers and fault finders. They're complainers, they're negative, they're never satisfied. They're the opposite of thankful. They follow their own evil desires. That means they serve only themselves. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. They're the masters of manipulation. They take advantage of people to get people on their side. Verse 17, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own, godly, their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. He says they're not even saved. He says they're among you, but they're not truly of God. Now, we're going to read the rest of this little tiny letter next week. And I want to hang out on two big ideas uh, today. And then we're going we're to pray um, you know we we've got some early movies with the kids. We want to make sure that we have some time to process this and worship. So uh, so stick with me. We're going to go pretty swiftly. A few highlights of this portion are this: two things never change. There are just some things that never change. The two things that never change are the are the gospel and the wolves. Let's take a look at the gospel. The gospel does not change. The word gospel means good, life-changing news. Guys, listen, it's not just news. It is life-changing news. It is life-altering news. Jude 3 says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend, to fight, to stand up for the faith that was once for all. Everybody say once for all. Once for all entrusted to God's Holy people. Jude tells us right up front some things never change. The gospel, the good news, the problem of sin, the answer to that sin, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are a couple of things you need to understand about this once delivered once and for all. Is Number one, there is a faith once delivered. There is a faith that was once delivered and entrusted to God's people. For the faith that was once for all entrusted, some translations say delivered to the saints or to God's holy people. Guys, listen, 2,000 years ago, the gospel was delivered to us all, once and for all. There are no new revelations. There are no new updates. There is no Bible 2.0. The Bible does not have an expiration date. It has not expired. It has not outgrown its cultural relevance. It has been delivered once and for all. It has been given. It has been entrusted. It has been uh, delivered in that we are to now to the point where we must not accept anything else but that once delivered once and for all. And trust, guys, if you are a follower of God, this has been entrusted to you, this has been delivered to you, this has been given to the saints of God. Galatians 1, Paul says this to the churches in Galatia, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, he says, even if I or an angel or some spirit claiming to be from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now, so I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. There's only one truth already given it has been established, it has been entrusted, it is written fascination with new insight in the Bible. You know, there's just like waves of like the new word, the new thing, the new, you know, when somebody says, I got a new revelation, run. When somebody says, I got a new insight, run. Because it has been, now there is illumination where the Bible, kind of the light bulb comes on. And you understand it's called illumination. There is illumination, but there is no more revelation. It has been given. It has been entrusted. It has been, it has been, Entrusted and delivered to you, to the saints, the holy people, to contend for. Jesus gave it to the apostles, and they delivered it to us at the cost of their lives and their blood. The world has tried to stop it. The world has tried to silence it. The world has tried to shut it down, but it cannot. Culture tries to update it, but it cannot, because the gospel the faith has been once delivered. I want you to write this down. This is something to understand as well, is that this faith is worth contending for. It's worth contending for. Jude 3 says, I have compelled to write and urge you to contend for this faith that has been entrusted to you. This truth has survived the blood of martyrs and persecution. Even today, the number one most persecuted people group in the world are Christians. Why? Because of what we believe. There is a faith worth contending for. The word contend, it means to never give a platform to those who bring a different gospel. Let me explain that. Never authenticate the message that conflicts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not about shutting down the voice of others in the world. This is about shutting out the voice of those in the church. Guys, the church is the place where the gospel is to be proclaimed and from the church to the world. We are not to be out there with megaphones shutting down other voices and other religions. This is not about uh, taking someone's free speech. We are not. We, You know, the Spirit of God moves best when there's freedom for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives, okay? Well, you cannot... You cannot force someone to be a Christian. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom. You can't even reason them into the knowledge of Christ. It must be, and it is only by the Spirit of God. But in the church, I'm never going to have somebody stand right up here or in there in our kid venture or in our small groups and speak a different gospel than what we know to be true. Whether it be, if I one day start preaching this weird, funky stuff, you need to get bats and chase me out of here. If I say I had a vision last night, and the Lord Jesus came to me, and he said, now we can do this, and you're like, that is not from the Bible, See, Mormons, for instance, they believe in what's known as progressive revelation. They believe that there's revelation that is progressively changing and growing, and they believe that the newest stuff overrides the oldest stuff. But the gospel's right here. Jude says right here, it has been given. It has been entrusted once and for all. It is not something that can be changed, shifted, or updated. 2 John 1.9 says, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Mm. That means if someone says, I'm a Christian, but then when you run, you run in the opposite direction of God's word, then the Bible says you're not one of his kids. Someone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. See, a lot of people think that the Christianity is just believe. It's just love. It's just goosebumps. It's just helping people and being a good person. No, it is teaching as well. There is theology attached to our faith. What we believe matters. In fact, salvation is based upon that whole notion. If you believe... And confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You shall be saved. For God so loved the world that anyone, whosoever believes. There is teaching. There is theology attached to our faith. It is not just a matter of being a nice, good, kind, loving, Christ-like person. It's truth and love. He says, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching do not take them into your house or welcome them. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 says that if there's a person among you who calls himself a Christian but yet lives like hell, it says don't even have dinner with them. He says, and then he goes on to say, of course I'm not talking about those that are lost. He says we are to have dinner with them. We are to reach out to them. But if someone who says they are a Christian is saying what Christ would not say, He's saying they're pretenders and they're dangerous to the body of Christ. This is a serious book, wouldn't you say? I want you to write this down. Contend means never confuse the gospel with traditions, methods, or preference. We are not to contend for the traditions of the church. We are not to contend for music preferences. We are not to contend for uh, no shorts in church. We're not to contend for styles and a suit, or we're not to contend for a building on what is an acceptable church location. We are not to contend for methods Sermon, stand when we read God's word, sit, kneel. Those things are all traditions. They might be helpful, but we are not to contend for them. We're not to contend for clothes. We're not to contend for preferences. We are to only contend for the gospel, the faith of Jesus Christ. Romans 14 says, in fact, uh, through 15, it says, Don't fight over the little stuff of are Christians, but stand strong in the truth. Here's the second thing that never changes, the gospel never changes, some things never change. And number 2, the wolves never change. This is Jude's story. Jude's about the wolves. He says in Jude 4 it says for certain individuals whose condemnation was written among long ago, written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. God's enemies often come disguised as friends. 2 Corinthians 11 says that They often come as angels of light and angels of righteousness. That means they come doing good things. They come being positive people. There might be people who are doing good things but could still be a wolf because they're preaching a gospel opposite of the gospel of Christ. And he says earlier, some of these wolves, they don't even realize they're wolves, but they are a wolf and they've slipped in among you. The faith is being attacked from within the church still today. Acts 20, Paul warns the pastors at Ephesus. He says, verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away many disciples after them. God's enemies often come disguised as... As his friends. Some of the worst enemies of Christian doctrine are professing Christians who do not hold to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. They don't come as a villain, they come as a friend, often acting as if they're trying to help. Even the serpent in the garden was trying to help Eve give her some food. Even the enemy at the temptation of Christ in the desert came to help him. Surely you're hungry. Here, But what he brought was a false gospel. Jude 4, he goes on to say, he says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about have secretly slipped in among you. He says, these are ungodly people who, number one, who pervert the gospel, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, And number two, deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. I want to end with this. Two things pretenders like to do. Two things that were are that like signs that this person is a pretender, a fake, a phony. Number one, they redefine morality. He says, these pretenders, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. See, there are some people, man, I'm forgiven, man. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And then they go out and live in a way that is not God-honoring at all. If you think that your walk with God is a permission slip to live any way you want, you are misguided by a false gospel. Jesus gave his all so that we could give our all. He gave his life. We are to, in turn, give our life. And if you think that being a Christian gives you allowance Because now you're forgiven and every... You know, Romans says this, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Romans 6, I think it is. He says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he goes, God forbid. He says, no, we've been set free from our sin. We are to learn to walk mature in and out of our old life into the new life that God has for us. It is not a license. It is not a permission slip. A license to sin, those who say they are Christians... They like to redefine morality based upon their feelings, based upon their agenda, based upon their opinions, and based upon their own desires and temptations. Probably one of the biggest issues in the church today is the redefinition of sexuality. And this was 2,000 years ago that Jude was written, and he says there are people who... Use grace as a license for immorality. The word immorality there is sexual immorality. It's not just talking about non-sexual things. That's specific to sexual immorality. He says there's this wave today even in the church for Christians to redefine what sex is, to to redefine what marriage is, to redefine what a healthy God-designed human being is to function like. There's a lot of confusion about it in the church. If you are leading to a liberal side, if you, in your thinking, think that it's time to update the Bible to be more current to 2016, then you have missed the gospel, the faith that has been entrusted to us by the apostles and delivered to the saints that we are to contend for. Some of us, we like to harp on homosexuality, but yes, some of you, you, are, you live just as perverted in your own life. We give allowance to sex outside of marriage, but we like to condemn homosexuals. We give allowance for you know pornography, but yet we condemn homosexuals, or we condemn that sin, or we condemn... We, you know, this is a challenge to look in the mirror. Are you redefining sexual immorality Because of your own desires, opinions, or challenges. Where to contend for the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints, because the pretenders, they like to redefine immorality. Why is sex a big deal to God by the way? You know, man, the church is always trying to condemn sex and stuff. Here's why. Sex is a heart and spiritual issue designed for a beautiful purpose and function. Twisting God's design in this area results in pain, poverty, rape, abortion, addiction, adultery, divorce, pornography, fatherless homes, motherless homes, distrust, depression, and the list goes on. This matters to God because God loves you. God loves you, He designed you, and He knows what is best. For you. He knows what is best for human beings. And almost every book in the Bible, everyone renounces sexual immorality. God's standard was delivered once and for all and delivered to the saints. And we are to contend for the faith. Here's the second thing that the pretenders like to do is they like to redefine Jesus. Jude 4 says, these ungodly people, these pretenders, they deny Jesus Christ, are only sovereign and Lord. Just that phrase right there declares Jesus as God. If anyone tells you that Jesus is not God, they are a pretender. If there's any faith, any religion, or anybody that downplays the authority of Jesus as just a creation like Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is just a creation, the first creation. To the Mormons, Jesus is strictly, uh, he is Uh, a brother, an offspring of the father, the brother of Lucifer. He is not God himself. Jude says they deny Jesus as our sovereign and our Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father except through me. There is no other way. Some say, well, that seems real intolerant, Ted. It is intolerant, but it is very inclusive because he says, come all, come all." Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some I say, well, they're sincere. But they're sincere. They're good people. They're kind people. They're loving people. Well, Jesus is still the only way. The wrong path is still the wrong path, even when you think you're going the right direction. You know, uh I used to come down to the West End, and uh, I used to get lost a lot coming downtown uh, when I was uh, in college. And I used to go down there and go witnessing. I used to, like, every weekend at West End or Deep Ellum, and I used to, like, be on the corner and hand out tracks and stuff. And my uh, my girlfriend then, Nicole, uh, who's now my wife, in case she didn't know that, uh, she came down there one time with some friends. And uh, she was leaving downtown and started heading home, and she was driving for a good uh, hour when she realized she was on her way to Waco (laughs) instead of Rockwall. Now, for a good hour, she was convinced she was going in the right direction. But even though she thought she was going in the right direction, she was wrong. She was wrong. The wrong path is still the wrong path even if you think you're right. Some of these pretenders, even though they have good intentions, they're still going in the wrong direction because they redefine Jesus. You see, some things never change. The wolves will always be hungry and the gospel will always stand. And I'm thankful that it still has the power to save, that it still has the power to redeem, that it still has the power to correct a broken path and to put it on course for life and healing. I want to challenge you. Look out for the wolves. Contend for the faith. Next week, we're going to continue Jude in this little tiny series called Hey Jude. And next week, we're going to talk about the contenders. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for the gospel that is able to, save and redeem. It stands strong today. God, I thank you for the word of God that has been entrusted to us, to the saints, and delivered to us. God, I pray that we would stand strong and contend for the faith. God, that doesn't mean that we are argumentative. It doesn't mean that we fight with people. It doesn't mean that we are angry. God, help us to know that it doesn't mean that we become combative But, Lord, let us respond with grace and with boldness, with love and with truth. God, let us contend for the faith. God, I believe there's some people here that need to know the power of the gospel. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I want this, Jesus. I want this truth. I want this life that has been preserved for you, for me. And I want to give you a chance to say yes to that gospel, that saving gospel that still saves lives today. If you're here today, I just want to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to invite all of you to say this prayer with me if you'd like. Uh, Let's say it out loud. Dear Jesus, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. I live for you. Fill me with your spirit. Show me how to walk with you. Mature me in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, could you do me a favor here in a moment? We're going to take up the offering. Sean's going to pray for it. If you could just fill out that connection card and say, you know what? I made a decision, or I'd like to know more about this Jesus that you talk about. Maybe today wasn't your day, but you'd like to talk more about it. I'd love to talk to you more about this faith that was delivered to us. So uh, fill out that connection card, and let us know what, what God's doing in your life.